Hello and welcome back to the Bitcoin with Jake show. Today we have Daz B. Welcome, Daz. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me, buddy. No, absolute pleasure. So, Daz, um, yeah, I normally kick things off in a fairly straightforward way. Could you give us a little introduction about yourself and um, the projects you're working on today? Yeah, mate. Yep. So, my name's Daz B. And... Um, I am a Sparky by trade, so that's Aussie for electrician, uh, for anyone overseas might be listening. And um, I've done a little bit of university study as well, so I've got a Bachelor of Engineering Science, um, which keeps me occupied through the day. I work for a local utility company in the energy space, so we look at our power distribution systems, getting basically uh, electricity and power to the end user, to people um so that that's that's basically what i do through the day and then by night i'm um, completely obsessed with bitcoin so a better <laughs> part of the last last couple of years i have uh much to my wife's disgust i spend most of my waking time looking reading uh listening absolutely absorb as much content about bitcoin as i can and as such that sort of turned into another passion which is um sort of paying it forward realizing that not everybody uh, is a, is so obsessed as I am, nor can they afford the time uh, to to absorb that much content about it. So I try and um, you know give back to the community a little in in sort of little ways that I can by distilling some of that content that I read down into little bite sized grabs. Mainly looking at you know my my fellow man, the uh, fellow tradies, fellow wage earners, anybody who sort of works for a living. You know we're so encumbered by this system that is designed with not our best intentions in mind and sort of when you lift the lid off that system and you look inside you sort of there's there's little else that you can do apart from try and help people realize how the system's engineered and how that's impacting them and do anything you can to try and help people along you know because it's us wage earners that really get screwed over by the way things are think things are, are are sort of orchestrated and you know we just don't know about it yeah, it's madness, isn't it? Well, our wives have um, something in common in terms of uh, <laughs> spare time and obsessions. Um, gosh, Daz, yeah, cool. I, I love the story to, to start off with. Um, so th there's a specific project you're involved in at the moment called the Looking Glass Education or Looking Glass Education. And, and I yeah. read just a, a brief part of the, the intro section and I, I enjoyed the sentence in particular. Was, this is grassroots financial education. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about what that means to you and perhaps just start from the problem. Like you were working, you couldn't work out how the fuck to save any money and what do you do? Um, so just, just dive on into like, you know, think of the shittest day that you had and you just were thinking to yourself, what the hell is going on in this world? And let's go down that journey together. So where did it take you? What did you read? And I just, I love learning about people's, let's just say unique lens, like everyone seems to have a totally unique lens to Bitcoin and it'll come clear. So anyone listening, just bear with us as we go back and it may not sound relevant to begin with, but I'm sure it will all come clear in the end. So um, yeah, could you talk a bit about that, please? I would even go back as far as before I became a Sparky. So I did an adult apprenticeship. Um, how how in, old in were you when you started that? Uh, so I was 30 years old, I'd say 29, 30. Uh, okay. Just starting to look at starting a family. I worked a salary job before that. And, you know, we were just a typical young couple, like I'm pretty done with their money. You know, we, we partied a lot. We drank a lot. We hung out with friends a lot. You know, we weren't really um, savvy with how to 
earn money and invest. We come from both come from humble beginnings. My wife and I, you know, we've been together 20 odd years now. So I've just turned um, 40. So, you know, um, we were going pay to pay. We just lived a typical Aussie life where you go to work, you earn your wage and you spend every last cent and you don't think too much about the future. You don't think too much about investing wasn't even an option for us. And then, you know, I sort of hit 30 and I started to um, probably start to think a little bit more about, you know, starting to bring children into the world. And that always sort of, you know, everybody can probably relate to having to sit down now and go, holy crap, you know, I'm about to become a father. What does that look like? How do I need to change? I'm about to bring another human into the world who I'm responsible for. And you start to realign some of your incentives and some of your your thought processes about how you go about living that life. And one of those things was, I need more money. Um, You know, if we're not putting any money aside now, and I'm about to bring children into the world and you've got to feed them, you've got to clothe them, you've got to buy nappies, you know, how am I going to do that? And one of those things was, okay, well, I need to increase my, my earnings power. And we love living uh, where we live in, in far North Queensland. And we didn't want to sacrifice any of that sort of thing. And there's only so much when there's not a big base um, as far as corporations go. And I always work for big corporations. You can only climb the ladder so far if you want to maintain that certain lifestyle without having to move to big cities. And it was one of the things I thought, you know what, I need to get off salary. I need to get off, no matter what I put in, I get the same output. Do you know what I mean? And it was uh, a, a subconscious thing that I put together early um, in that in that system of, of typical fiat jobs is you earn and, you know, it didn't matter how many hours I put in, there was no opportunity for anything extra. So overtime and that sort of thing. And that's where I looked at a trade background is typically you are, you are paid for your, your input. So you are paid an hourly rate. You know, if you work overtime, you get an hourly rate in proportional to you going out of your way if you work a saturday you work a sunday you are rewarded for that um the more you put in the more reward you take out of that you know so that's where i always wanted to be a sparky and that's sort of where i thought you know there's a trajectory there where i can earn a decent income um if if wife was to roll back from work i could support both of us so she could you know do what she needs to do to raise kids and, and that's sort of where i come from and then the apprenticeship years were hard. Um, they were probably the hardest years and they actually put us back financially. Um, if, if I'm to be perfectly honest, quite considerably, it involved after the apprenticeship, it involved a move um, to central Queensland and that come with its own expenses. By that stage, we had two kids, but um, you know, finally I was able to start. Um, I actually read the barefoot investor. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Um, I actually, I haven't read it myself, but it's an, it's an Aussie um, broadcast uh, broadcaster isn't it um i'm not sure he's a, he's a yeah yeah he's written a couple of books i'm not sure if um how much media attention or yeah look and it was just a really bare bones book about just looking at your outgoings looking at your basic finances looking at um your bank fees everywhere from bank fees to superannuation fees to uh, what what are the normal outgoings from your um, from your wage each week? And just really really strip back um, way of approaching your finances, which I you know it's really relatable to a lot of Australians, and that's why he's, he sold his bestseller because um, that was really and one thing really resonated with me is he said in that book, what do you do through your day or what skills do you have that you can freelance? It's all about increasing income. 
And, um, and what, what, so what skills do you have or what do you do in your day job? And is there an opportunity to branch out and, you know, again, this reward about this, this, the, the incentive structure behind, if you put more out, you get more back. Um, so can you go and freelance with whatever your skill set is or whatever you do for your day job? Can you go and find other things that you can go, you know, with, the proliferation of the internet and things like Fiverr and freelancer and all these sort of things. It's just looking at different ways on how you can increase your income. Um, and one of those things for me was I played guitar since I was a young kid, um, since I was eight and I always wanted to do gigs. It was one of those things, which I always promised myself I'd do and I just never had the balls to do it, you know? And so we'd moved to a new town. No one knew me. I grew this beard, which I'm still sporting, you know? And I thought, you know what, I'm going to give this a crack and try and get me some extra income from a skill that I have, which is singing and playing guitar. I've done it since, you know, for 30 odd years. I'm not bad at it. Like I'm not going to say I'm the greatest guitarist or singer in the world, but I just think I was slightly less shit than the other people (laughs) that were doing it in that town. So, you know, I went out and I started busking. And then from busking, I invested some of that money back into gear. So I bought better gear to make me sound better. And I started getting pub gigs and club gigs and playing at the, you know, the uh, surf clubs and local bars and the rural pubs and that sort of stuff. And I ended up with a really good little name for myself. And I had all this extra income then. So stuff that, you know, was mostly cash in hand, tax man, don't come at me. I've changed, I promise. Um, you know, so it's, it was extra cash. And I, I finally had some money to put aside. I've I read that um, Barefoot Investor book, which is, you know, he, he talks a little bit about like um, ETS and listed investment companies about investing that way. So I thought, you know what, I've always wanted to learn about investing as well. So I'm going to d- dive in and learn about investing. And, you know, I'm one of these sort of people that I like to understand something fully or as much as I can before I, um, before I jump in. So when I started on that journey, I promised myself I would spend a whole year reading as much as I could about investing and before I put a single dime into any markets or anything like that. And that's where the sort of journey started. I started looking at the ASX, ASX have actually their website's got quite a good little, um, bit of content about investing, what are shares, what are bonds, all this sort of stuff. Just starting that real bare bones because I knew nothing. I didn't know what a dividend was. I didn't know um, I didn't know how stocks really worked. I didn't know what a bond was. So it was, I had to start from the beginning. And I'm sort of one of those people that I get a little bit obsessive about things as well. So when I start on something, it's, it's wholehearted. Um, and of course, I just started obsessing over finance. And then I come across um, the... TIP, the uh, the investors podcast with Preston Pish, and um, I think he's responsible for orange peeling probably half the globe um, with with that podcast. It's a really successful podcast, and they are true to heart value investors. That's where they started, and I sort of I really resonated with that value investing um, mindset about never losing money. That made sense to me. That's that's how you should invest. Absolutely, you know, if you can invest and not lose money, the aim of the game is not lose a cent then that's really what resonated with me. And that's what I bought right into. And then um, as I sort of was going along the back catalog of those investors podcast, um, the, the back catalog, you can hear Preston Pish is one of the hosts. You can hear the penny drop for him about Bitcoin. And I'm sort of going along the same journey, albeit a few years behind. And so I'd, I'd read a couple of um, 
Preston's got a really good book actually called the Warren Buffett accounting book. So anybody who wants to I actually tweeted about this recently, just to give this book another plug, anybody who wants to learn how to value stocks and really how to invest. That's a really good book to read because it does teach you. They've tried to dissect the Warren Buffett method or what they believe is to be the Warren Buffett method by looking at all his investment letters, all his essays that he's put out, all of his talks. And they've really tried to pick out the little nuggets that, the breadcrumbs that Warren Buffett leaves in all of these investment talks to try and build a framework around how you value invest. And really what it boils down to is learning the intrinsic value of a stock, learning what you're buying. So you hear so many investors, you know, particularly like your retail investors, people you might work with and so forth say, Oh, you know, I bought BHP shares the other day. And so, Oh yeah, why'd you buy it? Oh, cause it went down, you know, and it's like, well, what's the intrinsic value? What, what's a fair price to pay for BHP? And they just look at you sort of dumbfounded. And that was something to me that I just, when I found, when I read about that, it just made so much sense that I didn't know, people didn't know about that. Um, you know, people don't really take the time to look, how much should I be paying for that share? It's no different than buying a small business, you know, um, whereby if you were to buy a coffee shop, you're going to want to know how many cups of coffee are you selling? What's the base cost for your products? How much do the cups cost you? How much does the coffee cup cost you? How much does the milk cost you? What's your overheads? What's your staff rates? Before you would even think about buying that business, you're going to want to know what's your bottom line, what's your overheads, and 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 what are your profits? And people don't take that same approach with um with stock investing. It's crazy. So I've probably digressed a little bit there, but yeah, what that um, the point of that sort of story was that Warren Buffett accounting book. Um, was the foundation what I used and I built all these spreadsheets to help me value stocks. And this is sort of, I'm sort of coming full circle into how I, I come on a Bitcoin. So um, I'm going to go back to 20, the end of 2019, start of 2020. I started really piecing together exactly how to value stocks. But what I really found was there was nothing to buy. So I'd, I'd done all the homework. I'd, done all the valuations i was pretty confident i had all my formulas right um and using you know book 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 value and doing all the analysis on your debt levels and all that sort of stuff and there was still like the whole sort of universe of australian stocks the asx 200 there was probably two or three stocks on my list that were actually deemed to be sort of okay to buy as far as an intrinsic value is concerned and then like and, and they were only cheap because they had bad debt. So it wasn't something you'd invest in anyway. And I'm sort of scratching my head and I'm going, there's got to be something wrong here. I'm doing something wrong or something's fundamentally wrong. And listening to then Preston sort of talk about the same sort of things, catching up to their current. And he starts to piece together that the money system is totally broken. The whole structure between money, currency, this fiat currency and interest rates is what is causing massive overvaluations in the stock market. And when I started piecing that together, then the next sort of piece of the puzzle was open up to me and it was all about macro. So I needed to know about, well, how does this money printing work? How does interest rates work? How do they keep interest rates low? And that is a whole other kettle of fish, which, you know, once you lift the lid off that, you go, holy shit, we're in some trouble. We are in major, major trouble. So that was a big ramble. I don't I know if it. I've answered. I love it. It's, um, I just, I find it so incredible how um, resourceful and 
um, practical and intelligent humans are. Like just incredible, isn't it? Like you're looking for a solution to a personal problem you had and you, you know, you were playing guitar, made a bit of cash, right? What am I going to do with it? Okay. I need to understand what I'm doing first. And then you sat down, you're basically giving yourself a, a crash course in, you know, any equity analyst will be pretty chuffed with what you do. Do you know what I mean? And they sit in financial cities, uh, financial hubs in multiple cities around the world. So yeah, no, fantastic. Well done. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, and there's lots of bits I'd love to dive into a bit more, but <clears throat> Carry on where you were going, because it's it's always fun to listen to exactly the, the process that you went through. So um, there you were, you had this toolkit that was like, this is how I price a company. Fuck, that doesn't work. And then it's like, well, what's the macro? Oh my God, what the hell central banking? And then Bitcoin, right? So you get to this kind of moment. So can you talk a bit about that? So um, was it Preston in particular, like, or any other character that you came across that was pumping out relevant content? And you know, one thing I love is that, um, yes, there's a lot of fake news out there, no doubt. But there's also a huge amount of information that you can find for relatively cheap. You know, that Warren Buffett accounting book was probably no more than 20 bucks. I think it was $8. There you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it was, a, it was a number of number of different things. So I started looking at, um, from the value investing side of things, a couple of books that really sort of ring true because i still think like and this is an opportunity for any bitcoiners listening to this too i firmly believe if i'm just to digress a little second i firmly believe we're going to end up very wealthy <laughs> and at some point we will probably want to deploy there will be there will probably exist a world in 10 years time 20 years time or so forth where you're probably going to want to deploy some of that bitcoin into other ventures and there's one opportunity here. It's at the moment, stock values are grossly over, overvalued and there's nowhere in that market that I potentially, I, I do own some shares, right? But they're diamonds in the rough. It's so hard. But at some point, that may come back to equilibrium. And then, you know, it's a real opportunity for Bitcoiners to start. Use this time now. We know that Bitcoin is a pristine collateral level up use this time to uh, you know educate yourselves and that sort of thing because in 10 years time you may want to deploy that capital into a stock so you need to know how to value it um so that that was the sort of uh point i wanted to make but sorry just to get back to your your, your question so it was it was definitely preston preston pish and stig broderson on that investors podcast is such a fantastic resource and it's completely free it's ridiculous it's completely free um real vision was actually a big um, key factor for me, Raoul Powell in particular. I've gone a little bit, I don't like the direction they're going with their crypto stuff. Um, I think they're delving too far down the shitcoin rabbit hole. Um, so if, for anyone new listening to this, um, it's, you know, it, it's just another, he started off with a really good macro view. So the real vision is a macro, um, it, it, I, would, I would class it as more of a macro educational platform rather than uh, anything specifically crypto, but they are branching down into, into that rabbit, into that rabbit warrant. But um, from a fundamental perspective, they used to, they were just putting out some phenomenal content right around when COVID hit and all these lockdowns, they started the daily briefing and they had um, Ash Bennington and Ed Harrison and their daily briefings were just phenomenal to keep abreast of what the hell was going on in the world from a finance market perspective and then Raoul Powell on every Friday used to come on and build his macro framework around that. So it was the introduction from Bitcoin. Um, 
from Preston, but you know, it really all started down this problem with the money. You've got to understand the money and how currency works, how money's supposed to work and the history of money and the evolution of money. And that's what we really focus on in the, in the course that we've built is that educational process for what the hell is money. Most people now, they're starting to hear this term fiat currency. But if you, if you went back 18 months ago, fiat currency was a foreign term to most people. They probably never even heard of it. Um, so it's that whole evolution of where we, how we come to use money for a start and where we started to get it really right was with monetary metals. Um, you know, and one other great resource, obviously, is the Bitcoin standard. And, you know, I often recommend that book to people who want to know more about money. And it's, it's a really, I think the title turns people off. Like, and this is what we tried to achieve with the, with the course is we tried to not make it a Bitcoin course. We've tried to make this course more about finance and the monetary system with Bitcoin included because it plays such a big role and it's got such a big opportunity moving forward. But we also like so many people need to know about Bitcoin and want to know about Bitcoin. But as soon as you say Bitcoin, they're scared. So it's, it's that education process between having to learn where we come from in the, in, in the monetary, where money came from. We started from barter. Then we moved onto commodities trading. We use salt and we use glass beads and we use stones and all these different sort of things to make that medium of exchange easier. And then naturally that just went into what is scarce. So finitely scarce materials. And one of those things that everybody sort of loved throughout history for 5,000 years was gold. And gold was a phenomenal money. It was, you know, it couldn't be created by anybody. It couldn't be... Um, you know, alchemists have tried for centuries to, you know, work out the, the chemical compounds to make it out of thin air, but they have been unable to do it. And that sense of scarcity, humans always flood to scarcity. So, you know, it's, it's so obvious and more, some people more than others, you know, like some people collect stamps because they're scarce, you know, or they collect baseball cards because that Michael Jordan is Pokemon. You, you know, know we're, you we're collectors, yeah. we're hoarders. We love that yeah. sense of scarcity. So, you know, gold was just a natural evolution for us. And it was just, uh, you know, and it, and it held its value. So that is the main difference between currency and a, a currency and a money is it holds its value over time. So from money, monetary metals, where we had coinage, we then went to paperbacked currency where, you know, if you had a fair bit of wealth in gold, it was a big gold bar, but that was really cumbersome to deal in, right? So you didn't want to be walking around town carrying your big gold bar. Um, so you would store it in a warehouse and that warehouse would issue you a receipt. And then over time, we just became, oh, so much easier, Jake, if I just give you the receipt rather right, than, yeah. you know, and you were, you were like, oh, well, I trust that, you know, we bank at the same warehouse basically we both keep our gold in the same warehouse i just trust that your receipt is good for the gold and then those warehouse operators caught onto this and they thought huh you know what nobody's coming back for their gold how about we just stretch that how about we just issue one extra receipt for the gold how about two how about three and then all of a sudden we've got a fractionalized banking system and there was no precedent in law back in the in, in those days so they got away with it scot free because the politicians of the day saw what a great economic stimulus it was if we could just create a little bit more of this currency, these receipts, 
you know, one person's spending is another person's income. So if you can increase the spending, you can increase the income and that works its way through the economy. And that's why we've built this notion of an inflationary system is good for us, you know, but at the end of the day, that system still had a, a, a metal backed currency. It was still metal backed. It was backed by something, even though it was fractionally reserved, it still had a fraction of reserves. The next iteration to that evolution of money was just, well, let's get, just get rid of the gold backing. It's, it's annoying us. Let's just make the paper receipts. Our monetary gold system. shit now, get rid of it. We're just going full paper. <laughs> Come on. That's right. And, and why that was, I mean, gold was, gold was hard to deal with, you know? So if one country needed to settle trade with another country, once we become globalized, it was like, what's, you know, so if, if France bought a heap of shit off Japan, you know, Japan back in the day didn't want the sweet, uh, the, the, the French currency. So they would just say, okay, well, they're settling gold. So they would have to pack it, ship it, weigh it, secure it, send it over to Japan. Japan, or do we trust France? Oh, well, maybe not. So we got to melt it down. We got to weigh it. We got to count it. That whole process, it takes six to 12 months only for the currencies to reverse. And then that trade imbalance reverses. And now all of a sudden, you know, Japan owes France money. We've got to send it back the other way. And so then they thought, oh, well, we need a trusted third party in the middle here. And then enters such players like the Bank of International Settlements. So they're not, um, they're not, they don't have to answer to any government. They uh, were created under a treaty, um, I think it was in Switzerland, uh, for example. So, you know, in, in Basel, uh, there, nobody, no government jurisdiction, no police, no, um, jurisdictional body can enter their premise they're a little country all into their own in, in, in basel switzerland wow and they were entrusted with this settlement layer between the countries right and one really good example of this is um how the stories go is um um germany invades czechoslovakia everybody holds their gold at the bank of international settlement it's like here's germany's pile of gold here's uk's or well, britain's pile of gold here's france's pile of gold here's czechoslovakia's um, pile of gold. Germany invades Czechoslovakia. Germany gets in contact with the Bank of International Settlements and says, by the way, we've invaded Czechoslovakia. That gold's now ours. And the Bank of International Settlements turns around and says, okay. okay. <laughs> and, and that was it. So this is why gold doesn't work is because nobody trusts that third party, nor should they. Mm. You know, And this is why what makes Bitcoin such uh, uh, an attractive proposition to governments into central banks is it's only a matter of time before they start hoarding this because nobody can stop you know if, if russia and ukraine are just classic examples of these sanctions and, and we had canada recently as well all these sanctions on on banking and institution and financial rails it's bitcoin is fuck you money bitcoin doesn't care about sanctions bitcoin doesn't care about you know and that could be good and bad right but that's the whole point of it it's not controlled by any central body it's not nobody can stop a bitcoin transaction going through um and it's only a matter of time before the central banks start to realize that hey you know if we hold some portion of our reserves in bitcoin it gives us optionality in order to settle trade imbalances with other countries that we want to trade with you know and it and it's something that we don't have to trust anybody to hold it for us we don't have to um, secure it. It can't be seized. It can't be confiscated. And we can transfer billions of dollars of wealth in 10 minutes mm. with, you know, settlement and immutable um, transactions. 
It's incredible. It, it's absolutely incredible. And, um, you know, it's, as I said numerous times just then, it's only a matter of time before, you know, the world catches on to what this thing is and what it can do. And so, Daz, if I could kind of draw you back to um, the person you were 10 years ago, you know, when you, you realized you were <clears throat> earning a wage that wasn't enough to do anything more than, you know, have the fun life that you and your wife at the time were leading and you, you took on the adult apprenticeship and, you know, you ended up learning about all of this. Now, I mentioned already your, your course is talking about grassroots financial education. Everything that you've just talked through is accessible education, right? It's easy. You can find it. People can go and learn about it. Um, what do you think has been the most important part of this process for you in terms of how you feel every day? So now that you've, you've gone and learned this stuff and, and, and you've been able to make some investments with some spare cash that you generated, like, how does that make you feel? Do you feel more relaxed now or just more in control of your life? Or um, does it make you just want more? Um, have you found benefit from going through this process? And, you know, through that, you know, anyone that's listening out there, I'm sure that doing Daz's course will be a very good primer to get to the place that you're now at. But yeah, how does it make you feel? At peace, to be perfectly honest, knowing that, wow. knowing that a lot of shit has to go down for me to be in a place where I once was living pay to pay. So it's bought me optionality. It's bought me peace of mind and it's bought me a buffer to know that, um, you know, a lot, a lot can go wrong for me now and I'll still be okay. Whereas before I learned about all this, before I learned about being able to save in hard money, you know, cause I don't see Bitcoin as an investment anymore. I see it as savings. I see it as this is what we were all waiting for when our parents were growing up, they had good interest rates. They could put their money in the bank and that was deemed the safest place for it. You would put your money in the bank, you would save at a, and you'd earn interest above inflation. And you would then go, once you had enough savings, you would go and deploy that. And that's exactly how I see Bitcoin now. I don't see it as an investment. I don't see it as a risk asset. I see it as hard money, as somewhere that I'm parking my cash because it's useless. Cash is useless. Bitcoin buys me optionality and buys me freedom. And it is only a matter of time before that it increases exponentially. And, you know, people have got a sort of, one of the things that I do in my personal articles is I and on my Facebook friend groups and all this sort of stuff is I I give a dollar cost average example where if you just put ten dollars and I know ten dollars a day is a lot for some people so don't get me wrong and that's not what, what it's about it's just a bit more about the message but if you were able to put ten dollars a day away in savings I keep this little graph of what that looks like uh, if you had just done ten dollars worth of Bitcoin every single day in order to smooth out that volatility because the let's not sugarcoat it. Bitcoin is volatile and it's volatile enough to shake people out who don't know how to handle that volatility. Um, and typically if you're going to bite the bullet one day and think without the conviction, without the education, you think, Oh, this Bitcoin thing's a good thing. I'm just going to go in. Typically because the price is going to go down. For, you you're going to go mean, down like, 40%. Like the BHP example you gave earlier. Why'd you buy Bitcoin? Oh, cause it came off a little bit, you yeah. know, which part of the cycle are you in? What's going on with adoption? How is the, the the mining network at the moment? What regulations just changed? You know, there could be any number of different things, right? 
It's um, exactly right. And yeah, like, cool. what a great you'll girl. Always... You'll have to um, you'll have to share that with me after as well. For sure. And I guess just going back to your grassroots example, um, uh, the, the question about the grassroots stuff, and that's what that's really what motivated us to create this course is we have so many conversations with your friends and family about Bitcoin, and it's it's so hard to not come across sounding like a lunatic, but also give them the information that they need in a small bite-sized package. Correct, yeah. So whenever somebody expressed some interest in, in, in Bitcoin for me, I was always, okay, listen to this podcast, watch this video on YouTube, read this book, go to this article. There's always multiple, there's so many fantastic resources out there, but what we tried to do is come together and just give them a nice bite-sized course. So the whole thing takes two and a half hours to three hours, depending on your reading speed. And we supplemented that with audio. So if you're not a big reader, because that's what I found when I was writing my articles is, you know, they're great does, but far out, man, I'm not reading that thing on bonds for 20 minutes. You know what I mean? So, and that, that's like, people, yeah. people just don't have time, mate. <laughs> By the time you work in your fiat job, you're putting in your extra 10 hours you know, and you're not getting rewarded for it. And you got to pick the kids up from school and you got to get them yeah, to their yeah, soccer practice and yeah. get dinner, you know, to, to both mum and dad working most, most of the time, it's just a shit lifestyle. It really is. And so they just don't have time. So if we thought, okay, well, let's make it more accessible by creating an audio version of it so that if you want to listen to it on your commute, you can, it's on, you know, Apple and Spotify podcasts, uh, as well as in, embedded in the course. And then we thought, each of these little modules needs to be no more than, you know, five to 20 minutes at max. I think the biggest one's 23 minutes to listen to it. Um, that's the one on Bitcoin, funnily enough. So, you know, cause there's, there's a lot to pack in there, but we just wanted it to be nice, simple, bite-sized. And we tried to take as much of the jargon out and it's a really hard balance. It was a really big challenge for us to make it back to grassroots, make it back to people who don't have a financial educate people who don't even really want to know about finance because it hasn't helped them you know the finance systems fucked people over for so long people are really deterred by finance mm. even if they don't realize it you know it's just a, it's just one of those things that, oh, it's not for me i don't I, you know i don't have ten dollars a week to why put, do i need to know aside. about that yeah. why do i need to know about that you know exactly so we just tried to make it really accessible try to really hit some of those emotional triggers like this is why you can't make ends meet this is why you live in pay to pay it's because of the system it's working against you and this is this is how it is and here's your options you know and we haven't shoved bitcoin down their throat as the panacea to to end everything it's like here's an option come to your own conclusions like everyone's risk tolerance is different everyone's going to approach this thing differently some people will ape all in do you know what i mean and and other people go oh okay what we're trying to do is just advocate for the fact that it's really remiss of you if it doesn't form some part of your, some part of your portfolio, and it, it just gives you enough to say this thing's really interesting. I want to learn more, mm -hmm. because in two and a half hours, even you can't build that conviction to take a large position in Bitcoin. It needs to start then to trigger your want to want to know more about this thing, and that's the other side of this platform. Is we've got a section in there called deep dives. And under each of the modules, when you get to the end, it's like, did you really like this content? Here's a deep dive 
to dig into that a little bit more. So we, we, you know, we'll introduce bonds. What the hell are bonds, you know, and should they form part of your investment portfolio? Here's why they did work. Here's why they perhaps don't work anymore, but just enough to wet your whistle. And then, you know, give you another avenue to say, okay, well, that was really interesting. I want to learn more about those bonds. Here's now a deep dive on how bonds work, bond math, everything. Mm. And so that's really what we're trying to build with that platform is give enough information to get people aware of it without, you know, bombarding them with information they're not interested in, but also provide the avenue and the, and the, and the tools in order for them to, to, you know, go and learn a bit more should any of those subjects piqued their interest you know well my um this is the very start of my bitcoin with jake podcast so your interview number two and my the small website i've built so far is pretty simple like 99 percent of people look at me like a completely fucking mad when i talk about bitcoin in a serious way and the solution to that is basically curating good information from all over the internet to one place i then write a newsletter and i'm starting a podcast um now, who knows where this might take me? I don't know. But there's no doubt that the, the aim is basically to legitimize the, the asset class that is Bitcoin. Like, this is a big fucking deal. And everyone from the king and queen of England down to anyone that's struggling with the paycheck to paycheck vibe needs to know about this stuff. And what I love so much is chatting through this journey you've been on. Um, it'll be hugely inspiration to many other people, right? It's, it's about sharing your story, sharing your journey, and anyone can do this. It's totally possible. And not just that, it's actually completely legitimate. So, and, you know, we can go on to this, but like Bitcoin, anti-Bitcoin rhetoric is really driven only by people that want this system to stay how it is. You know, you look at Financial Times history of Bitcoin articles, pretty much 99% of the time negative. You look at Wired, like more of a technology-focused magazine, Bitcoin, negative. We've got to ask, why is that the case? And that's kind of the same mindset that I feel like a lot of people are in when they say, why can't I save any money? Why am I so fucking tired? Why have I got no time in my day to do anything but like just get by? And perhaps they'll come across a course like yourself, which is that's the that's the tip of the iceberg and they just touch the top and they go, Oh, that's actually really made sense. And then there's all of these different avenues that they can go down after. Um, how cool. Well, congratulations. I, I hope it's a huge success. I'm sure it will be. Um, so th there's a, a, a cool thing to that, which is basically it's that trigger moment. So do you have any other kind of trigger moments that have happened to you personally that you always think of as standout kind of events in your life where you go, Oh, that was a really important, like door that I walk through or um, again, any other people that have influenced in your thinking um, or books you might've read? I'm sure there are, I'm sure there are many. I can't think of anything specific off the top of my head and particularly, particularly for Bitcoin, but I think, um, you know, one, one, one thing that's made me even more bullish on, on, on this whole concept of, of Bitcoin is just doing this sort of thing with more and more Bitcoiners, more and more people. And I'm, I mean, there's this thing called, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of um, uh, the, the, the inherent bias that you get from having the same conversations with the same sort of people. But it's so evident to yeah. me that this is, this is <clears throat> such a big deal that 
you know, and just meeting other people who are so aligned in their thinking, you know, one, one of the other guys, he's just a beautiful human man. And I'm just so pleased to have met him through this process is, is Seb Bunny. He's the co-author for this course. So there's six of us that have worked on this platform, but Seb and I have just gotten to know each other really well. We were the, the main co-writers for the, the course itself. So the other guys have been involved with content creation and we've got Greg Foss there. who's just a fantastic networker. We've got Jason, who was one of the, the, um, the, the founders uh, who, who come up with this concept and they're going to be deep diving into another avenue to really speak to like hedge fund managers and all this, but with, you know, Seb Bunny is just one of these beautiful people that you meet and he's, he's, he's younger than me by about 10 years, but he's so much wiser. And it's just amazing where you can meet some of these people um, that just really change your life in a way that's profound. Wow. So just the knowledge that this young guy has. Um, and he's, he's he probably, he, he, I don't, I'm sure he won't mind me talking about this, but he left school at 14 and he was a mountain bike instructor in the back hills of Canada. He grew up in New Zealand. He's moved, moved over to Canada and he was a mountain bike instructor, ski instructor through, through the years. And he just has lived a very successful life from self-education. And he's just an inspir such an inspirational guy to talk to. Like, you know, as I said, I'm 10 years older than him. He's, he's a single guy with no kids, but I'm, I'm, I'm calling him often. Well, we talk daily and I'll ask him for life advice. You know what I mean? He's just one of these beautiful souls that in this, this space just tends to attract these sort of people, um, people who want to build a better world for everybody, you know, and like yourself, Jake, I'm going to turn the tables on you. What inspires you to go and do what you're doing with, with the Substack and, and your, and your newsletter and this podcast? Like, what is it about Bitcoin specifically that just has absorbed and made you say, I need to do this? Oh, great question. Um, this is supposed to be about you, this. this. <laughs> um, well, I mean, my, my personal journey is a big part of this whole process. And um, much like yourself, I faced a problem and Bitcoin solves that problem. Um, so I was 20 years old and my father died and um, my family business back in the UK, successful company. And we had this beautiful property on in the south of the UK that we'd had in the family for 80 years and we sold it only 18 months after my father died. And I was the eldest son and we had this, um, yeah, this, this horrible process. My father's only 48 when he died, heart attack, um, sudden death. And then basically I was in charge of family finances, decisions well ahead of my years. There was a trust that was involved and there was then family discussion on about what to do with the money and the whole thing was was difficult really really difficult anyway i as a you know mid 20 year old man inherited money and it, it sounds like a wonderful thing in so many ways it's definitely some some difficult parts to it as well as the good things i'd swap it every day if dad was still around but um you know let's say you get given 10 grand and it's 2011 what do you do with it well, you want to save it. Okay. How are you going to do that? Well, you put it in the bank. Well, okay. What happens to it in 10 years time? Well, it's still there, isn't it? Providing the bank's still going. Yeah. What can it buy you? 
um well i don't know what what can it buy me 10 grand like no mate it cannot buy you 10 grand it can buy you whatever the purchasing power of said currency is in 10 years time and when you start looking at the rates of money printing it's getting worse and worse and worse as a store of value so i steamed into um or steamed you know i tried to learn about what i was doing i was also um naive you know young man as well so i made some mistakes along the way but I basically did some real estate investing. I worked with a wealth manager, putting money into bonds, stocks, commodities, currencies. Um, I invested into crypto. And that's how initially I hit a bit of Bitcoin in 2015. And that's really where all that started. Um, and yeah, long story short, I began investing. Now, I'm not a professionally trained investor by any means, but I'm someone who wants the results of the investments. And so I live and die by the decisions I've made and some of them have gone wrong. Like at this point in time, I'm trying to exit a property position in the UK and London where believe it or not, I've lost money on the original equity position from seven years ago. And that's in physical real estate in central London, which to most people sounds like a no brainer. So um, basically keeping what you're given is fucking hard because investing is hard. Saving and investment are not synonymous. They're not the same thing. And along comes Bitcoin. Initially, I thought it was an investment. I, I was, you know, I put a very, very small percentage of my net wealth into Bitcoin 2015. I sold 75% of that position by the bull run of 2017 and didn't really look at it again until 2020 when everything changed, basically. And the, the, the money printing that occurred as a result of COVID. But um, the point is, um, I feel like I've discovered a savings technology that basically it, it's, it's the best thing for family wealth planning you can possibly imagine. And everything I've learned for the last 10 years means that that's what I think is the truth. And I think people should know about this. Now, I spend plenty of time, you know, trying to persuade my brother and sister and my mom to get more, more on the Bitcoin game. You know, we have got our trust to invest in some recently. Um, but my brother and sister, they're, they're not really in the same headspace as myself. They never took the investing as, as seriously as I did. And um, that's just our different natures, I guess. But um, yeah, I feel like what I've learned through that process is a, a very unique um, experience. Like most people don't inherit money, in fact. In fact, if they do, they don't do it till they're like 60, right? But I happen to be 25 and tackling these problems. And it's just like, whoa, that's actually pretty unique. Um, and so like yourself, I see this, this huge opportunity to get involved in grassroots education. Now, yes, I am interested in investment full stop. So is there potentially a play where, you know, you put 90% of your wealth in Bitcoin, you have 5% in some value investment stocks, and you have 5% in an altcoin play, which is purely speculative. Sure. Or maybe get involved in some Bitcoin mining. I don't know where exactly the portfolio will end up sitting, but What's absolutely the case is that I'm working towards having as much as possible in Bitcoin. And the more I get in there, the more relaxed I feel. And that goes mm. back to your point about feeling more, you know, at ease and like more can go wrong than previously before you're in trouble. And it's, it's an incredible feeling. Like, why wouldn't you want to share that with people? Um, and yeah, sure. You know, the, the, the kind of the classic influences on, why I think like this. The main one from 2020 is Michael Saylor. And he did an interview with Raoul Powell being a character you mentioned previously. Um, 
I remember specifically, it's two, two and a half hour long YouTube called Bitcoin Infiltrates Corporate America. And Raul interviews Michael. He talks about his, his training as basically a um, you know, rocket scientist and then the, the kind of military background, then into private business. And then you know, he's the longest serving stock listed CEO in, in the States. You know, this guy knows what he's fucking doing. And he puts $450 million into Bitcoin without anyone knowing so, you know, one of the things I've learned through the investment game is it's totally okay to leverage other people's due diligence. Like at school, oh, don't copy someone else's work. Like, oh, big no-no. It's absolute, it's like terrible education. Like someone else has worked this out. It's okay for you to profit from that as well. Um, and I learned that specifically. I did some early stage startup investing, which I think as Bitcoin is one day will be really interesting for us as well is reinvesting our Bitcoin um, wealth into early stage equity projects. Um, but yeah, just, I think it's the most compelling subject I've ever come across. And I, I feel, you know, hugely, uh, incentivized to talk about it. And hence you've just asked me that question. I've ranted for like a good five minutes, but yeah, that's a bit about why I'm interested in this. Yeah. That's perfect, mate. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I think everybody would fully benefit from the host's journey as well. So I'm glad I asked that question because it fully resonates it'll resonate with a lot of people. It resonates with me. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> no, no, I'll continue to talk about it. It's, it's, it'll be the most important subject of our lives. And so doing projects like this will be, we'll look back on it. as like hilarious at the time. Um, I yeah, think I mean, so. if you've got any other questions far away, I, I've got some, <laughs> I've got some beautiful. more to spin back in your direction there, if that's all right. Absolutely. Go for it. <laughs> so um, you mentioned that you have like an electrical engineering background and hmm. I'd just like to dive, dive into that for a bit because we became friends as well through Bitcoin Mining Australia, which is a Telegram group that I set up about a year ago now. Um, anyone listening, I advise you jump in if you're interested in Bitcoin mining and you're based in Oz. One of the things that is difficult to comprehend when you're looking at Bitcoin for the first time is like how it actually works and like what's electricity got to do with it and what's hash rate and Bitcoin mining like what in the hell does that actually mean? So you actually have an amazing um, kind of synergy in terms of base skills to understand, like you've talked to us about your value investing, like rabbit hole and learning about macro. Well, that's the kind of, that's the investment lens on Bitcoin, but your electrical engineering background is also very valuable when it's like, how does it function and why is it secure? So perhaps you could just like roll all the way back to when you were studying, like, why did you choose that course? Was it something you were always interested in? And then how does that roll into um, Bitcoin and how it functions? Sure. So um, it was a bit of a means to an end, actually. So it took me, I'd made a decision probably around 28, I think, or 27 even at the age of 27 to do a adult apprenticeship. Um, and one of the only ways I could afford to do so was at the local utility. And it took me about two years, three years to get in. So I applied and they'd only do a, an intake every year. So I'd, I'd apply, I got knocked back because I had a sales background. Nobody was really interested in, in, uh, in hiring me. So um, I decided to take matters into my own hands and start the university degree. Um, so I enrolled in, uh, in not a bachelor degree. I, uh, I enrolled in an associate degree of electrical and electronic engineering, which is basically a full bachelor degree is four years. Um, that's roughly the first two years of that full four-year bachelor degree. So I started doing that off my own bat, studying part-time 
um, while working. And then I got offered a apprenticeship slash traineeship. And one of the things was just so happened that they would desperately wanting people to finish that particular degree that I enrolled in. So it was a blessing in disguise. I didn't know that at the time, but um, so they put me on as an apprentice. I got to finish that degree and then I kept going through and I ended up completing a bachelor of engineering science, which is like the three years of the four year degree. So I'm not an engineer. They call me a technologist. Um, and I am mainly, my day job is mainly involved. I'm more of an electrician than I am, but I work in an engineering field. So we do a lot of technical test and development. Um, we do primary plant testing. So in those substations, um, I don't know if, if people are familiar with where the transmission lines come in, the really high voltage transmission lines that'll come right up the coast of like Australia. They're typically energized at 275 to 132 kilovolts, very high transmission, the big steel towers. And then they go into what's called a, a zone substation or a bulk supply point. And we'll step that voltage down using big plant, big like size of two trucks side by side together. These big transformers will step that down from like 132 volts down to a sub-transmission level, typically 66 for where I live. Uh, and then there's other substations, which will step that down again from 66 down to 22 kV. And then 22 kV or 11 kV is typically what you will find on your poles and wires around your homes. Then on, from there, we'll step down that electricity again from 22 kV down to um, 415 or 240 volt, which is what you plug your hairdryer into, right? So that's a high level um, of, of the system itself. And where we get involved is we test and commission that, that plant. And we also test and commission the protection systems that make that safe. So when your lights go out, that's me on the other end, not, not physically, but I test the systems to make sure that they behave in that way. When your lights go out, it's because there's typically something happening that's bad on the network. We don't want people to, to be killed. We want to operate that in a safe environment. So we design the systems to turn off when they need to turn off and they'll stay off uh, until it's investigated and turned back on. So that's the engineering arm of why I needed to be both a Sparky and an engineer um, or have that engineering degree. Um, is, is, is so you can understand that complex system. And at the end of the day, we've still got our hands on the screwdriver and the pliers doing, doing that physical wiring and, and that sort of stuff as well. So that's basically how I come into it. And, I, and, and why I decided to do that for a career is I was kind of always interested in, in electronics and playing around with that sort of thing. I'd, I'd, I'd muck around with circuitry and that sort of stuff. So that's where the interest in engineering sort of stemmed from. Um, and, and what got me into the job that I am and doing today. And I, I continue to do that, do that job, what I trained for as well. Um, uh, so I've been in that industry now for 10 years. So, um, and that's where I, I love that work. I love, I love electricity. I love the theory. I, um, I was obsessed with that before I was obsessed with Bitcoin and Bitcoin's just one of these really, Great things. Like, as I said, we'll come into it from a finance angle, but there's so many different facets of Bitcoin that pique people's interest. And one of those things is, is energy. And what makes, why, why that is the case is a large amount of energy is needed to make anything of value. So if we use like gold as an example to, to probably draw the corollary here, I can't say that word probably, um, is what makes gold valuable is that not only is it scarce, but it takes a huge amount of energy to, to dig it out of the ground. So we've got to find it for a start. We've got to 
you know, make these massive mines, dig into the ground, you know, underground, whether it's open pit or whatever, huge amount of energy, huge amount of machinery to go and find that gold, dig it out of the ground, process it, refine it. And that whole process takes, there's a base cost involved with that that makes that process possible. And that's like the floor price of gold. So we will never see gold theoretically drop below its inherent value to produce. Um, and that's where the correlation comes with Bitcoin. So you, we talk about Bitcoin mining and then people get a little bit confused about what is Bitcoin mining? Well, it's, it's kind of the same sort of process where we've got to expend a large amount of energy to find the Bitcoin. Um, and, and, and that doesn't make, always make, make sense. But basically, the fundamental process of Bitcoin mining is you've got a computer that's guessing the solution to a very complex problem. Um, and why that is the case is that we need to maintain that constant rate of release for Bitcoin so that we don't flood the market with, with Bitcoin. And that's part of the beautiful things that's built into the protocol called the difficulty adjustment. So if I've got a computer at home and I start mining Bitcoin, um, you know, the, the, the first couple of blocks were able to be mined on a, a normal PC, just anybody running that, that, that program. Now, the more computers that you have thrown at that problem, the easier it is to guess the solution that, re that releases the Bitcoin. And the Bitcoin is, is um, when these computers find a block, all the transactions that um, have preceded finding of that block get included into that block as well as the miner is rewarded with fresh issuance of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, there's only 19 million in circulation. We just hit the 19th million a couple of days ago. There's only ever going to be 21 million. And that is a slow rate of release of 6.25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes right now. And in 2024, around March to May, some, somewhere in that time frame, it'll halve again. It goes down to 3.125 Bitcoin another 210,000 Bitcoin blocks after that, it'll halve again and it'll keep halving until the last Bitcoin will be mined and they estimate that to be around 2140. So it's a slow rate of release and why that's why and how we control that slow rate of release so that not every single computer that's ever existed all, all of a sudden starts to turn on and, and mine Bitcoin and flood that, that market is we can control the rate of release of that Bitcoin through the difficulty adjustment and what that basically means is it makes that problem to solve in order to find the blocks harder. So the more com computational power we throw at, at, at solving those blocks, the, um, the harder that problem becomes it to, in order to control that rate of release for one block every 10 minutes so that we don't flood the market with excess Bitcoin. And that keeps the incentive for the miners to keep showing up, keep turning up every 10 minutes and keep having a go to try to be the next person to solve it because there's that monetary reward of 6.25 Bitcoin at the moment, plus all the transaction fees um, from all the transactions that are included in that block. And that's the carrot for the miners to keep turning up. Now, why this comes back to energy is this inherent cost of um, this, this, this inherent cost to produce, which, the, you know, just looking back at that, gold example why that why is that's the case with bitcoin as well is because we're expending all this energy to make it secure if somebody wants to go and copy bitcoin or make a change to bitcoin they've got to go and expend the same amount of energy that it took all of those computers that are pointing towards the bitcoin hash rate at the moment if they want to go back and re-release the last block that was mined they've got to go and expend all of that energy so it comes at a cost that's too great for that to be 
economically feasible for anybody to do. And that's why it's really, really important that, you know, there's all, you, you hear all of these bits of um, FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt about Bitcoin mining and, uh, and, and the amount of energy that it uses. But, you know, there's very good argument to suggest that that energy is not wasted. That energy is being used to secure one of the greatest monetary assets that we've ever had in history. It probably pales in comparison. If we were to put together the energy usage from all of the banks, all of their lights, all of their computers, all of their, um, you know, all of their branches together worldwide, it would probably, you know, be very, very similar in, in energy usage. I, I wouldn't know what that number is. I'd only be guessing. So I won't insult anybody's intelligence. Well, it'll be far bigger. Something out of the air. I, be I, I would, bigger. I would imagine it would. I saw. I would some imagine it would recently be. that um, that the Bitcoin network is using under 0.1% of total electricity globally. And that's obviously a fraction of, you know, well, for first of all, all, all the articles that you read about, you know, Bitcoin's bad for the environment. The, the argument is if, if you don't think Bitcoin is valuable, then under 0.1% of global electricity has been wasted completely. Yet there are millions of people around the world using it instead of banks to survive in Vietnam, Nigeria, you know, all manner of other uh, economies that have non-existent financial services. So I think you can make a pretty good argument that it's creating value for some people. So putting that discussion aside, it's still a tiny percentage of the global energy consumption picture. Um, and I, I can't remember, like there's, there's a bunch of good breakdowns. We could dig them up for the show notes or whatever. I can look at that, but um as a comparison, and there's there always... is no comparison. So the, the, the traditional financial industry would be using huge amounts more energy than Bitcoin, for sure. And and factor that in as well is what it costs to secure that industry. So you've got to look at all of the armies, all of the navies, yeah, yeah, all yeah. of the all yeah, of those systems. Army. I think yeah. um, Alex Gladstein does a good job of breaking those sort of things down. Yeah, that's good um, I believe it was one of his articles. Um, so what secures Bitcoin is energy. So in order for you to fuck with Bitcoin, you've got to expend the same amount of energy, which makes it theoretically impossible. Uh, and that's what makes it so secure is that nobody is going to be able to concentrate that much energy into one place in order to do anything nefarious to Bitcoin. And all they're going to succeed in doing is rolling back the last block and double spending any coins that they hold the keys for in that last block, um, which is, is plays into the game theory things. It's, it's economically unfeasible for anybody to go and want to try to do that. Um, and so we don't need an army. We don't need battleships. We don't need nuclear submarines. All we need is energy. And that secures that monetary system for the world. And it, like you say, so many people are finding value in that. So many people are opening up payment routes. We're banking the unbanked. We're providing banking and financial routes to the most impoverished people, uh, you know, in in throughout the world at the moment you just have to look at el salvador and things going on in in africa to really open up like what is that worth to people like i, I would put that back on you know the green pieces of the world who are looking at this it's like where where the fuck were you guys helping out you know the yeah. poorest of the poor not having access to a financial system it's all optics um i don't know if you came across this when you were value investing but i um I'm interested in something called impact investing. So um, 
there was a, a form of investment, equity investment that was created by the Quakers many, many years ago um, called negative screening, where they didn't want to have money in tobacco companies. And so there were religious groups, a few other bits and pieces they didn't like. So the, the investment houses that were dealing with their wealth would be able to invest in everything except for the companies that they negatively screened. Impact investment is a, a modern kind of iteration of this where it's called positive screening. And they use frameworks like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And they sit down and they go, okay, which companies can we invest in today are you know, directly benefiting these 17 strategic goals? And, and I really went hard down that hole for probably three or four years. Um, the funny thing being, Bitcoin's the best impact investment I've ever seen. Why? Because it, it, it solves a lot of problems in um, financial industries that just simply don't exist. Like that's number one. So banking the unbanked in places that currently just aren't even looked after. Um, but the other is this electricity piece that we're talking about. And again, I also look very deeply at the sustainability problem that we face and resource depletion and things like this. And putting aside, you know, how serious climate change actually is as a discussion, um, I made investments into early stage clean technology companies looking at the Paris regulations and making the bet that regulations are going to get stricter and we needed to build technology companies today for stock listed companies of the future to actually, you know, de-risk themselves from these Paris Agreement rules. And I was looking at um, a number of different types of companies, but this is what I'd like to, to vibe through with your electricity or electrical engineering kind of insights where um, Bitcoin actually starts to solve some other big problems, which make it an even better impact investment, which is the energy system itself. It cannot deal with flexibility. So we're used to baseload power and centralized energy sources or energy generation um, being then filtered out along a network, like what you mentioned before. So before answering the question myself, just from yourself, what impact do you think Bitcoin will have and the mining of um, of the network for how energy grids are created? And what do you see happening there? Is there anything changing in a day-to-day -day basis in your utility you work for? Or how's that going to play out, do you think? I haven't seen anything specific industry wide yet but again it's just this is one of these things that's only a matter of time so uh already we're starting to see not not i haven't seen anything personally in, in my utility network but i have uh been in contact with other people who it's so, a slow moving um, industry energy to be fair very slow moving yeah very slow so there is a couple of bodies like the national um energy regulator um the ner and the, um, I'm just trying to think of the acronyms now, AMO, um, which is the Australian Energy Market Operator. So they are already starting to look at some of these Bitcoin mining opportunities. They've, there are a few smaller farms already out there who have direct connections to these market operators. And now what they basically do is they look at the energy demand um, for, uh, for Australia. So Australia is one big interconnect, interconnected grid. So stretching right from Queensland down New South Wales, Victoria, we connect to Tasmania and we go to South Australia as well. So Northern Territory and, and Western Australia kind of out on their own, but the rest of us are all one big interconnected transmission network. And there are geographically dispersed generation centres throughout each of these states. So anything from coal to solar to wind farms to hydro. And so it's the um, energy regulator's job and the market operator's job to regulate those markets to try and control 
where we have the demand. So they use a lot of modeling and a lot of forecasting to forecast what demand's going to look like. So they look at weather reports as like how many people are going to have air conditioners on, for example. Um, you know, peak load for us in Australia is typically summer. Everybody's, you know, get, they get home, they turn their air conditioners on, they start cooking. So it's that peak period in the afternoon into the evening. Um, and what they've got to do is they've got to manage those loads. And so what we're seeing now, though, is the proliferation of renewables and this drive for renewables. But renewables are really, really shitty for managing baseload. So, you know, all you've got to think about is a massive solar farm and a cloud bit of decent cloud cover coming over. And all of a sudden you can lose 45 megawatts worth of load in one hit, which is a lot of households. A typical household's five kilowatts, right? That's uh, sort of, that's where the market operator is going to um, picture. Most people's load is five kilowatts. So you, you, you're taunting that. Um, you know, by a factor of, of a thousand plus, you know, whatever, whatever that particular generational center can do. So if, if you go switch 45 megawatts off, that's a problem. Um, so what you've got to have is you've got to have these nice, stable base load generational capacity, which is typically coal generators, coal powered, coal fired generators. They've got to be running. Right, and they've got to, and they can't just switch on at the click of a finger. They take time to ramp up, um, and they take time to in order to start spinning before they can take load. And that can be anywhere, depending on the generator, can be 10, 15, 20, half an hour, um, pick a number. So that's where Bitcoin really plays an opportunity is to be a very, very good load center to absorb some of that generational demand to be able to have a nice, stable, sustainable grid and be a load center that can switch off at the click of a button. Bitcoin can come on at the click of a button and it can turn off at the click of a button. They're basically just computers. They take probably 30 seconds to ramp up from sort of just starting up to full hash, uh, maybe a minute at most. So they are becoming a very, very handy way of absorbing so if, if you've got a generator running and it's not at full capacity it's still costing you x amount of money to have that thing spinning and if there's no revenue coming in to have that thing spinning then you're losing money so if you can plug a big bitcoin mining operation into geographically dispersed locations and you can order you know with the with technology these days you can tell those things to turn on and off at the click of a button automatically you can then start to manage that grid a whole lot more effectively and a whole lot more profitably while maintaining that base load demand for when everybody wants it. Nobody likes power outages, you know, and we've got market operating, um, the market operators put, um, you know, KPIs on the distribution companies that they've got to meet. They've got to be able to maintain certain amount of load, certain amount of um, customer they, they, the, the negative impact is customer minutes, what they record on. So it's like how, how long are people out of power on average for the year and also frequency. So if you've got more and more renewables like solar and wind that are really intermittent loads, but they can be quite high loads. So, you know, wind farms are typically, you know, 50 megawatts, same with solar farms up to 150 megawatts. These things are popping up all over the place. But if you can lose 150 megawatts worth of load because a little bit of cloud comes over or the wind drop, drops away, You've got to be able to smoothly and seamlessly pick up that load and be ready for it at the drop of a hat. And that's where Bitcoin mining can come into play. It's like we can have those generators pumping 
away. And if, you know, something does happen where a solar farm gets dropped off, then that's okay. We just tell that Bitcoin miner to switch off. And with it's a, it's a natural market, right? So the, the market operators are always looking at the bid for these generators for the revenue system. It's not a static price for them to turn on and start generating. It will fluctuate through the day depending on the demand. So like a hydro generator, for example, might get typically um, $30 per megawatt for export. Um, and, you know, they, that might fluctuate on the day due to the demands of the, of the load. Um, depending on what season you are and what time of the day it is, that can actually go negative. So at some point they're like, oh, we need you to switch off because you're generating too much and we don't have enough demand and you'll overload the system with too excess generation. So that negative mark, that, that bid can actually go negative where they actually, you know, if you flip that to Bitcoin, they can actually be paid to turn off. So rather than the Bitcoin miners getting charged to, to mine, now all of a sudden, oh, hang on, we will actually, we will get paid to wow. switch off because to be that, um, that backstop, that that load, that flexible load, and that, these are the sort of deals that are going on, and it's only, it's only getting more and more common, but it's still such an early, it's it's really hard to start those conversations. So yeah. that's probably what I'm going to focus on, probably towards the end of the year, um, yeah. is is really focus on honing in. Um, a lot more of that and, and making that information more accessible to people as well, because so many people want that information. There's so many, you know, on our Bitcoin mining telegram group, so many people are just frothing over. I've got excess capital. I've made good capital from my Bitcoin investment. I'm looking to deploy that in, in different ways. And, you know, it's such a massive opportunity here in Australia because it's not being done. Like we see all these stories of, the guys in the states flaring natural gas from these oil oil wells and all that sort of stuff. It's like their industry is developing at such a rapid rate, but Australia is just slow at the wheel at the moment, and it's just hard to get that good information and and how you would go about pulling the trigger to start that conversation with the market operators because there aren't there are some that are out there already. Um, so I've, I've had a couple of conversations already and it's just a, a matter of, um, you know, sitting down and working out what, what it needs to get a project like that off the ground. Yeah, this is so much to go through there in a sense, but um, I would encourage you just personally to focus on that space because it really makes a lot of sense that, you know, you come from a electrician's background, you've worked for a big utility and you're a Bitcoiner. Like this is like the kind of, this is almost like the, uh, you're the kind of secret Bitcoiner within an organization that could actually change things. Um, and yeah, I would encourage you to really focus on that. I, I've also been involved in a couple of interesting conversations with people here. And as I mentioned before, my experience with the energy market is it moves pretty slowly. It's heavily regulated. The government's all over it. And it's just not as easy as just turning up and making it happen. Um, but the, the second part to what I think is cool about what you explained is, and this is what I hope my podcast will help to, to bring to people is this sense of legitimacy that Bitcoin is something that's really worth taking note of. And, you know, you are a fully qualified electrical engineer that's worked for 10 years in the industry, and you can see this huge opportunity to improve the ability of our electrical grid 
using Bitcoin mining, which only to me embellishes the opportunity that Bitcoin is. This is real. People need to take note of it. And it's going to do incredible things for humanity, basically, um, which is very cool. So Taz, so over an hour or so has flown by. Thank you very much for your time. Um, I'll, I'll look to wrap it up, to be honest. The um, the last thing I'll ask, yeah, so where can people reach you if, um, if they want to get in touch, if they want to find out a bit more about your educational programs and equally, you know, get you involved in a mining project or whatever? Sure. Um, Twitter's probably the best place to send people. So uh, D-A-Z-B-E-A number one uh, is my Twitter handle uh, for the education stuff. You can also check out Looking Glass EDU. Um, that's the Twitter handle for that and www.lookingglasseducation.com to, to find the course. But yeah, DMs are open. Always keen to talk about uh, Bitcoin, energy, electricity, <laughs> you name it. So uh, more the merrier. Thanks awesome. so much for having me on, man. Yeah, it does, mate. It's been great to chat properly. And um, yeah, thanks so much for your time. Too easy, mate. Anytime at all.